0: H from Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, hi, everybody. I am Kathy, and I am recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Um, it is kind of funny that this is the second time. Uh, the last time I was here, the, same, the very same thing happened. Uh, and I was being uh, hosted by an, another Claire, and um, it, who is actually here today. But um, I don't know. These things have a way of, of, of working out. And actually, we were kind of prepared for it in a way, because uh, the last time I did this was in Seattle in September, and my plane broke down in Dallas. So I missed the whole first... I mean, it just keeps happening. I don't know if there's a message there for me or what, but I said to Claire when she picked me up, you know, as I was sitting there for however long we sat there in Cincinnati on that plane for two hours, knowing that I would miss, you know, Friday night, I thought, well, I know they'll be pissed, but I know they won't fall apart because they all have a program, and so they'll just figure it out, and it'll be fine. So I just read my magazines, and it was great. (laughs) I didn't know when I wasn't prepared to hear myself on tape when I finally got here. That was kind of an I mean, that was a funny thing. I've never had that happen before. But um, I'm really glad to be here, although I'll be honest with you. I really, I really do, when Ethel first contacted me a couple of years ago, I, I really don't do workshops. I just have this little story that I tell. But um, somebody said, well, why don't you just try it? So I've tried it a couple of times. And, of course, then I go back to Cincinnati, so I don't really know how it works out. But uh, I guess my hesitation is because, like you, I mean, I just have these 12 steps, and I try, to, I try to live them in my life. And I, you know, have a sponsor who helps me over rough spots, and uh, I get to meetings, and I have a phone list, and I have my literature, and, you know, I just do the best that I can. Uh, but I'm certainly not um, an authority by any stretch of the imagination, uh, which is one thing that I really particularly enjoy about our traditions because it really keeps us all... You know, right there, shoulder to shoulder with one another. Um, but what I did was I, I use, um, I use, and I really love that book. One of the meetings that I go to in Cincinnati is a literature group uh, that a friend of mine and I started, and it's really it's based on the blue book, Alan on how it works. And we just read about 20 minutes of it, and then and then we go around the room and share our experience on that. So the handout that you have um, this summer, when I went on vacation. Um, alone, and it poured down rain the whole time I was gone, which was great because really all I did was read the book, and I just pulled out quotes that this past summer struck me. Now maybe if I did it today, I'd pull out something else, but but that's what I did, and so um, those are the those are the pieces that I'm gonna that I'm gonna try to talk about today. Um, I guess the other part for me is the reason that I say spirituality through working with steps is that. And, I, and, and maybe I'm walking into the area of my opinion, but I do know this, is that I have always been taught that this is a spiritual program. I mean, I've always been told that this is a spiritual program when all is said and done. And um, what, I, what I think is, is that you and I are all called to be holy men and women. And um, the real definition for the word holy, if you go back into the ancient language, is, is whole and so i believe that you and i really are called to be whole men and women spiritually physically emotionally and um, and i think the steps is that way to holiness um, and that's that's where i find the spirituality so um, we're only a little bit behind so hope you talk really fast um, the only problem that the only thing that might get screwed up is that i don't know what i said last night because <laughs> So if I start to repeat a story you've already heard, you know, just, I don't know, throw a pencil at me, and I'll move on to something else. Um, But I'm going to start then with step one. And because I do teach uh, high school, I teach seniors this year, uh, but I'm really used to teaching juniors, what I know is this, that kids will only listen to you for so long. I mean, really. And then you can see this glaze come over their eyes, and then you know it's time to sit down, be quiet, and then let them do some group work. So that's how we set this up. I'm just going to talk for a little bit, then you're going to do your own little groups, and then I'll talk, and then we'll eat, and then I'll talk, and then you do group. It just, really, it's just like like high school. But, But it works well with them, and I like to think we're all still pretty young, so it'll probably work for us too. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Um, Our book says that as long as we persist in the delusion that we can control or cure alcoholism, its symptoms or its effects, we continue to fight a battle we cannot win. Um, I always thought that my job as a wife was to, to fix and help my husband. I just thought that was what it was about. And I tried so hard to find the key to making him act right. I mean, I... I would try being really strong and tough, which is never, which never works very well with me. Or I'd try being very accommodating. I mean, I would just constantly be changing my, my hat. You know, one day I'd be this really peaceful, calm, whatever woman, and then that wouldn't work, and then I'd try to be this real, I'm not living like this anymore, you know, that kind. It was just nuts for me. But it was that, it all goes back to that, that, That mistaken idea that I thought I was in charge of somebody else's life, somebody else's health, somebody else's road to recovery. Um, And then the same happened with one of my sons, my son Michael. And, you know, I saw little Michael. He's number six out of the group. I mean, I saw him coming. He wasn't the first child that I had that got involved uh, with consequences in drugs and alcohol. But, you know, I, when he was in the third grade, it was like seeing a dust storm kick up. I saw him coming. And I would go to meetings and say, oh, oh no, isn't this enough? I mean, how many times do you have to deal with this in your life? Can't you just live with one and then get over it? I mean, why does it have to keep repeating itself? You know, and these women and men were like, you know, one day at a time, it's going to be okay. But I'll tell you what, I just, I, I, I just, uh, dreaded it I dreaded having to go through one more time a person in trouble one more time having to go through the court scene which uh, of course we ended up doing so I think in order to try to avoid the consequences I always was trying to head head it off I'm always trying to head off trouble with this uh this young kid Michael and I think I heard myself say that last night 15 you know the dreadlocks dyed gold but even long before that Long before that, you know, if if he was if he was mad at me, you know, he'd throw rocks at your my car. I mean, things that even my other kids were like, what in the world? School calling all the time. So I did what I could do. You know, I would defend him and tell the other kids, you know, that he was the sensitive one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's always those sensitive ones. They're my downfall. Uh, You know, I would try... I got him a big brother. I tried, uh, you know, taking him to work with adults, uh, you know, who are qualified to work with kids like this. Um, I would even warn other kids. What are you doing hanging around with him? (laughs) You want to get in trouble or what? I mean, you know, it was just... I was doing everything that I could to try to make this not true, that this kid actually was just wired differently. He's just wired differently. He's not a bad kid. He's a great kid, really. He's got a heart of gold. But he is wired differently. Uh, But I could see myself, and friends of mine could see myself getting, you know, digging a hole that was deeper and deeper because I simply was persisting in this delusion that I could control or cure alcoholism. Um, I always wanted him to get involved in sports, and then he would, you know, say some horrible thing to the coach and walk off in anger, and then the coach would call me, and because he was such a lovable kid, you know, they'd take him back. He'd say, I'm sorry, and then they'd take him back. And what happened, given his personality and given the fact that he was a high school student uh, in the high school where I taught, I mean, the whole high school began enabling this kid. Kids would cover for him. They would, you know, teachers wouldn't write him a demerit. Coaches would make allowances. And and actually none of it worked. And I began to see that no matter what we did, this was just going to go the way that it was going to go. Now, what's tricky there is this is that the lesson that I learned from getting to a lot of meetings and listening to people was this, that I still had to parent my child, that I still had to be a parent, that letting go did not mean for me that I was just like, hey, you know, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it, because I can't control it. And that's where the program really aided me, is it allowed me to see that there is a fine line between Knowing that you can take action, but that you have to let go of the results, and yet continuing to parent my children, and to have certain, you know, reasonable rules within the home that this child had to, you know, had to follow, just like everybody else. And I found the same to be true with my husband when he was alive. Alanon showed me how to love him. What what we say in the for what I've heard in the program is to love him with open hands, to love him as a compassionate wife, and yet knowing that I couldn't control. I mean, we say in Al-Anon that we have those, you know, those four M's, mothering, managing, mal- manipulation, and martyrdom. And those four M's, both as a parent and as a, as a wife, those were the, always were the ones that I had to face. Managing, mothering, manipulating, or martyrdom. Those four classic four M's of Al-Anon. So I have to say that, you know, by, by really paying attention to my own beha- to my own behavior, As a parent, I began to see what I was doing, and things changed for me. Um, Thus, even when there are no alcoholics directly involved, the effects of alcoholism continue to dominate. Now, I had a daughter that got married in December, and I have seven kids, and actually all seven drink today. Um, A couple of them have been in AA, um, and I don't think are any longer. Um, And here I am, just last December, at this rehearsal dinner with... um, all my children and their dates and, um, and all, and I'm surrounded by seven drinking children. The 18 year old is not supposed to drink. I'm sure he was because all his brothers and sisters were covering for him and shielding. I mean, you know, this thing that they do. But I'll tell you, I didn't really do very well with it. I did not do very well with it at all. I kept saying to myself, Kathy, you're powerless over these kids. They're all over 21 except for the one. Well, no, there are two that are over 21. But you are, you're, you know, you're, you're powerless over, over what these kids choose to do. My mind says to me, after everything we've been through, after everything we've been through, I think we're the only family in my neighborhood that takes vacations around rehab centers. I mean, I could be wrong, but I mean, I think, do they not? I don't know. But what bothered me was when I went to leave early, I mean, you know, I was there, we had the dinner, everybody's toasting the bride and groom to be yak, yak, and I think, okay, this is great, now it's time for me to go home because I know tomorrow's going to be a big day. So I go to leave, and one of my kids grabbed me by the arm and said, Where are you going? We're not leaving yet. And I'll tell you, I, 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 had a, I had a memory of being grabbed by my arm, and those same eyes said, Wait a minute, where are you going? We're not leaving yet. And I'll tell you, it scared me. So I went home, and I called a friend in the program, and uh, she said, You know, our families have been profoundly and deeply affected by alcoholism. And so have I. And so have I. And I have those flashes of a very difficult and painful time in my life when I had no program. And that's what happened to me that Friday night and just this past December. And when I talked to my sponsor the next day, actually she was at the wedding, I said to her, Patty, my kids all drink. And she said, of course they do. <laughs> so she said. I mean, and it was like, yeah, of course they do. And so... And so what? And so what? You have to continue to recover, no matter what anybody else is doing. I have to continue to recover. I have to continue to commit myself to this program. Um, and one time after a meeting not so long ago, uh, a man was at our meeting, and he was pretty new. But we were doing Step Ten. I do a step. We do a step. Our meeting is a step meeting. My home group is a step meeting. And um, he grabbed me after the meeting, and he said, "Why do you people all wear such a hair shirt? I mean, why do you always..." You know, talk about your, but your defects, character. I mean, we all have defects, character. And I said, well, you know, that's true. But alcoholism exaggerates them. Alcoholism exaggerates them, and that's why we need to pay attention to them, because it's like Miracle Grow on every defective character I have. <laughs> really, alcoholism. If I got, when I was married, I was a little bit of a manipulator. Oh my God! Ten years later, I mean, I'm like the master puppeteer. I mean, I can pull pulling strings left and right. That's what happens. And I also said to him, not only, because, not only because we know that, but also because, you know, we are desperately, I think, in some cases, we, are, we have lived with the terror of this disease. And we do not take it lightly. And so maybe somebody who doesn't live with alcoholism can say, yeah, sometimes, I'm, sometimes I manipulate, sometimes I play the role of the martyr. And, and it will be okay for them. It won't be okay for me. Because I have been profoundly and deeply affected by a disease. And so have my kids. And so have my kids. Uh, One of my daughters um, has been going to Al-Anon, and uh, she said to me, the meeting that she goes to, she said, they never have uh, that uh, one-day-at-a-time book. And I said, oh, Alan, just come over. I've got one. I mean, I've got an extra one. You can have mine. Um, So she came over, and this was on January the 20th. She came over, and she said, well, let's see what it says for January the 20th. And she opened it up, and it said, we cannot hurt others without hurting ourselves. And she said... I don't think I'll ever get past January 20th. <laughs> uh, when we let go of the illusion of power over alcohol and over other people's lives, we move in a more positive, productive, and rewarding direction. We move towards, we move towards hope. We move towards hope. Now for me, I don't have to, I, I don't even have to live in hope. As long as I know I'm heading towards hope. Some days that's enough for me. That I know that there is hope out there. And that's the, one of the most powerful gifts the program has and continues to give me: is a tremendous amount of hope that maybe things might be rotten today, but you know what? They're not always going to be rotten. They're not always going to be rotten because I'm around men and women who were where I am some days, and and they move out of that with great hope and with great grace in their lives. That's a tremendous thing. This 15-year-old son that you heard about last night and um, continued to act out and got into a lot of trouble and was finally um, arrested for uh, drunken disorderly, DUI, I mean, a number of things. And I really wasn't quite sure um, what, you know, where to go with him or what to do with him. And a woman uh, out from California who I'd met once, you know, she'd said to me, Hey, just flip a coin and remember that God is in charge. Just flip a coin and remember God is in charge. You don't have to figure this out for anybody. You take the best action that you can and believe that you really are powerless. God's in charge here. It was a tremendous help to me to hear that and to remind myself of that. It goes back to the serenity prayer. There are some things that I can do. There are some actions that I can take. But there is just so much that I'm powerless over today. And that's okay. That's okay with me now. Um <clears throat> You'll have to figure, oh, you'll, <laughs> when this kid was, uh, just before his 18th birthday, he was in jail. He was in the juvenile center, and um, I went to visit him on visiting day. And actually, this sounds crazy, but I've had kids in juvenile detention before, but they've built a new one in Cincinnati, and this new one's much nicer. You go in, they have lockers, and you just, uh, I was there, and this woman who had never been there before, she was walking around in state of confusion, and I was like, hey, go over there, open the lock, get the key, put your purse in there, keep the key, get on the back elevator, we'll go up, we'll see him for a while, it's going to be great, you know. So we go along, we go up, we see the, you know, we see the kids and my little, you know, dreadlock kids come out, and he's just as cute as he can be. I mean, he's just as cute as he can be. And, uh, but boy, I'll tell you, he, he says to me, Mom, you know, when I start drinking, I just can't stop. I just can't stop. And I say, Mike, just really a garden-variety alcoholic. That's all. You just, you know, you're wired differently. So we're sitting there, and I'm visiting him, and he puts his foot up on the rung of the chair next to him, and this burly guard says, put your feet on the floor, which he does. And he said, "Um, I don't know, Mom. I don't know what it is. I mean, uh, I just don't know why I keep ending up in trouble like this. And I said to him, well, Mike, I'm not really sure either, but I do know one thing, that if you continue to drink, this, this is as good as it's going to get. I mean, this today, sitting here in the visiting room of juvenile detention, having a burly guard tell you you can't put your feet up on the rungs of a chair, this is as good as it gets. And I didn't say that in a cruel way or in a, you know, scolding way. I just knew it was the truth. Because this kid's getting close to 18 and then everything changes. You know, then you're not in with a bunch of, uh, you know, 15 and 16-year-old kids. Then you're in with grown men. So, you know, I... I, uh, he said to me then, well, Mom, you know, do you think, do you think that there's, um, isn't there, I mean, he had heard of a place from somebody. He had heard of a, of a, of a recovering ranch. And my kids, some of them, are, are ride horses because that's their background. And um, he said, do you think there'd be any chance? He said, I'm not blaming my problems on Cincinnati, but do you think there'd be any chance that they might consider taking me? And I said, well, you know, I don't know, Mike. I mean, I don't know. You'll have to, you know, if you'll have to make that phone call yourself. And when I left, when I left that juvenile facility and was walking out in the parking lot with this woman who's just, I mean, she was a wreck. Uh, you know, and I'm telling her, all is well. Hey, all is well. It's going to be great. I turned around. <laughs> there in the window is this kid, my kid, going like this. I said to that woman, that's my boy. <laughs> what can you do? I know what I can do, what you've taught me. I can love him. I can love him with open hands. I, can, I have to parent them but I don't have to determine for them how their life is going to go or what their relationship with their higher powers should look like. Uh, step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Having continually failed to resolve our, difficult, resolve our difficulties ourselves, most of us finally realized we must look for help uh, in a more promising place. One of the first things that I heard when I got into this program was that failure was the beginning of wisdom. Failure is the beginning of wisdom. And at the time, it didn't make sense to me like it makes sense to me today. Because, and you may have heard it last night, I don't know, but alcoholism simply hollowed me out. It just hollowed me out as a human being. And I can remember when I came in and, and these men and women were saying, well, you know, this is really about us. It's about our recovery from this disease. It's not about anybody else but us. And we have to take a look at ourselves and how sick and insane we were. And I thought, insane? Insane? You have no idea what insane is. You should meet... The mister. If you want to see insane, I mean, I'm like the, you know, the queen of sanity. I'm always comparing myself, you see, with him. Never with somebody who really was sane. So uh, my sponsor said to me then, she said, Kathy, can you think of this? Can you think of yourself as being sick with anger? Sick with rage? Sick with grief? You know, can you think of yourself as being uh, sick with resentment? That made sense to me. That made sense to me. Because I knew that there were some times when I was so angry and so mad, I really was almost sick to my stomach. Because I was constantly churning inside with this great injustice that had been done to me. And so the insanity of that, the sickness of that sort, those sorts of emotions and feelings, you know, that made sense to me. That festering anger that I carried with me for so many years it does damage, took its toll on me. It truly did. And it's because of, you know, getting to meetings, uh, reading that literature, using the phone list, having a sponsor, going to open AA meetings, all those things, listening to tapes, um, all those things and beyond. Those are the kinds of things that led me to believe that I could lead a sane and serene life one more time again, that my emotional, spiritual, and physical health, health could be restored, could be restored if I was willing to do what you told me to do. Some of us get an inkling that there might be a power that can do what we, by ourselves, cannot when we first attend an Al-Anon meeting and actually experience a moment of relief from our suffering. Um, At my very first meeting, I I went to a beginner's meeting, and the woman told me that alcoholism was a disease that I couldn't cure, I couldn't control, and I didn't cause. And that was the first time anybody had ever given me that news, because I always thought it was my job to cure and to control my husband's disease. Just thought for sure that was what I was supposed to be doing. Never thought that I caused it, of course. Um, But it required, and I learned from going to meetings, that to be restored to sanity required of me a lot of letting go. And the biggest thing I had to let go of was let go of being right. And that's why that phrase, you know, you could be right, has and continues to be so good for me. Because when I say it, I am aware that I have to let go of that insistence that bugs me Uh, about, you know, having to be right, having to look good and having to be right. I was in the South once in Alabama, I think, um, or Arkansas, and this very elderly Southern woman told me that she often says this prayer, God, sit on my tongue. Now, that's another one that's helped me out a lot, because when I start talking, it's usually to convince you of something or to, you know, you know, let you know that I've got the right answers and you don't, and I continually, when I'm listening to someone, particularly in my profession as a teacher with high school kids, I have to say to myself, God, sit on my tongue. Just sit on my tongue and listen. Just learn to listen. It's been very helpful for me, and for me, it's part of that restoration to sanity, I think. Um... When I, when this kid was in trouble, I don't know if I told the story last night, but I do really do like this. When, when this kid was in trouble, I was, uh, he was placed in the hospital. And as a result of that, they were going to take us all one night to an Al-Anon meeting. Not already been in for, I don't know, a number of years, but, you know. And I wanted to say, ah, but I, God said on my tongue, I went to this beginner's Al-Anon meeting on the other side of town, was not very happy about having to go because they read the wrong opening. <laughs> I don't know if you ever do that, but they read the wrong opening. It wasn't even an al opening, but, I'm, you know, God said on my tongue. So then I thought, well, I'm just not going to share. That'll fix them. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, just uh, what a brat, you know, don't want to be there, they're on the wrong side of town, they don't read the right opening, blah, blah, blah. I sit there, and this, this man got up and told the story about being a lifeguard, which made sense to me because I was a lifeguard, so I worked my way through school. And... Um, he said, you know, when they train you as a lifeguard, they warn you that when someone is drowning in deep water, um, you don't go in after them. Did I already tell you this story? You know, that was, such, that, was so, that was such a good lesson for me to hear because it made sense to me. You do what you can do. But you, my insanity came from getting in that deep water time and time again and then being so hurt because this drowning man was grabbing onto me and taking me under. Out of fear, out of his own fear and out of his own sickness. And I'll tell you that story, oh, my gosh. It still makes you, you know, it just has stayed with me for a long, long time. Because when I'm getting crazy, it's a result of doing those daily inventories when I ask myself, what is it really here that's making me crazy? When I am tired, what is it really here that's wearing me out? And it's usually I'm doing something I really have no business doing. And it makes me nuts. And it makes me nuts. Um, one of these times, uh, when this kid of mine was thrown out of high school, where I teach, um, <clears throat> I had to sit out on the steps. First of all, I had to escort him out. We knew he was going to have a fight. And, um, and so I said to the principal, who also happens to be a lifelong friend of mine, let me get him home. I'll just take him home. I was taking him home to get him out of the building. And she said, okay. So I wrote his teacher a note and said, uh, Cliff, hold on to Michael till I get down there. He's going to try to find some kid and beat the 11 daylights out of him. I was just writing the note when the principal appeared at the door and I said, I'm too late, right? And she said, <laughs> right. You already beat the crap out of this kid. So I said, okay. So I said to my students, you know, i got to take my kid home. He's just been expelled. So wait till I get a sub. And, you know, then I get my purse and I go get the kid and I drive him home. and Then I come back to teach. And, you know, when I was sitting, at one point I went out on the steps uh, to sit, and I had to say to myself, Kathy, you didn't get thrown out of high school. You stayed in high school, and you had a wonderful experience. His being thrown out of high school does not mean you've been thrown out of high school. You're still here. And I find myself constantly having to say that to my, about people I love. Their decision is not my decision. It helps me. It just simply helps me. When I was in court with this child... Um, the last time I had a judge who was not having a very good day. And when I came before her with my son, they brought him in shackles. I don't know if you've ever had a kid that's shackled, but I've had two of them. And it's it's not an easy thing to see. Your darling little son's being brought into a courtroom in chains and handcuffed. Anyway, so this cute little kid sits down next to me and the judge says to me, after his list of things are read, she looked over uh, her desk and she said to me, Can't you control your child? And I said, No. And that's all I said. I just said, No. And uh, so she put him under house arrest until he was 18 and sent him back to jail. And um, as I was, you know, as he, as he was walking out with me, he said, uh, I knew you'd say something like that. And I said, Michael, <laughs> I said, Michael, obviously if I could control you, we'd both be back at high school together. I mean, the answer is no. Now that, you know, my, you know, that's not easy for me to say in a court of law, but it's the truth. I can't, I can't control 17-year-old kids. I can parent them. I can do the best I can. But boy, I can't control them. I have found that out. Uh, And thank God for a program that, that that understands that. Because if I listened to other people who are not part of this program, they would have me convinced that I am absolutely the worst mother that you know known to Cincinnati. But you have taught me I'm not the best. I'm really not the best mother. I really only like kids very much. I'm not the best. I always say to the kids, I'm going to try to be, like, really warm and fuzzy. And I, I just forget I forget to do it. I mean, I, you know, I'm just... But I'm not the worst either. I'm, I'm just an okay mom. And that's all right. And that's all right. I'm not the best. I'm not the worst. I fall right into the middle. And that's okay. As a result of you. As a result of your helping me work through these steps and sharing with me how you're doing it based on this program. Take step two. We don't have to believe that this will happen, only that it could happen. That it can happen. Step two is about possibility, and that's why it is about hope. Um, You know, for me, I don't know, sometimes when I, in the world in which I live, I I think sometimes we have created a world that does very nicely without a higher power. And um, I'm very grateful for Al-Anon, because Al-Anon continues to allow me to live in a world where I'm very conscious of a power greater than myself, and my absolute need and dependence on God's grace and on God's um, willingness to walk with me through some difficult times, that I'm simply not self-sufficient. And when I tried to be on my own, when I tried to run it without the help and grace of God, I ran it right into the ground. Um, Slowly but surely, over a long period of time, I have begun to see the healing touch of God in my life. I mean, when I look at my life and how it has gone, I can see so clearly a compassionate, loving God who has put people in my life right on time. Who people that have walked with me through very difficult times, you know, shoulder to shoulder, and that you know, along. Some of them have long, walked a long time with me. Some for only a short while, but they all showed up in God's time. Um, I'm worried about time here. <clears throat> uh, step three: made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. You know, the step says all we need to do is to make a decision. It's all, all we need to do is make a decision. By making such a commitment, we stop setting ourselves up for the failure we have known in the past when we've tried to control. When we have tried to um, manipulate people and events that were beyond, that were beyond our control. Um, <clears throat> you know, that, that let go and let God, what a slogan. When I first came in, that was the one that I held on to. Let go and let God. And interestingly enough, it's the one um, that really has held me in good stead throughout, really believing that it was not in... A woman came to our meeting once, and she said she'd heard in this program, but I'd never heard it. She said, it's as though we all wrote a play and then didn't hand out the scripts to other people. And I thought that was so interesting, because how many times have I done that? I've sat down, I've written the whole play, but then I keep all the scripts, and, and when people act in another way, I'm like furious, and, and they don't understand it. Well, I have never I never tell them what, you know, I've never given out the scripts. It's a crazy way, writing a play and not handing out the scripts. You know, when I look back on it, and this, is, and this has been important for me, when I look back on it, I, I had a huge problem with my husband's drinking. I had a huge problem with my husband's drinking and his alcoholism. But I also, when I'm honest... I had a problem with marriage. I had a very hard time being married. I just really... I always watch my older sisters who are in long-term marriages. They've both been married older, longer than 30 years. And whenever their husbands come around, they it's just like they shift into a different gear. It's really nice how they do it. I've never been able to shift into that gear. I was telling um, the women last night that uh, on the plane, when I was stuck on the plane, there was this couple next to me. And uh, I know they weren't married. I mean, I know they weren't married to each other. I mean, I could just tell... (laughs) It's a terrible thing to say, but, you know, it gave me something to do for two and a half hours to figure out that relationship. I was just... I mean, they both had wedding rings on. He was a lot older. She was really, really young. But I could just tell from their conversation they weren't married to each other. I mean, it was... I can't explain it. But this is what I know today when I look back on things that... Because this is a program of honesty, I can see that some of the problems that were caused were not really about alcoholism. They were about my struggle with, being, with marriage. You know, they really were. And getting married, probably for not the right reasons. Getting married because everybody was getting married. And, you know, I thought it would be an adventure. And, but, I mean, as far as, like, long-term commitment and all those things that a true loving relationship requires, I don't know that at 21 I had any idea or any willingness to do that. Or any willingness to do that. This literature meeting that I go to, there's a map of the United States on the wall. And um, I don't know if you've ever noticed Florida, but sometimes when I'm looking, you know, when I'm just, my, I'm wandering, my mind is wandering, I look at that map, I think, how did Florida get all that coastal land? I mean, Alabama's got like this much, and Florida obviously has taken all of Alabama's coastline. So I think about that, and then I think about that in relation to marriage. And I think, you know, that's what I did when I was married. I... I continually, in order to keep peace, gave up my coastline until, you know, Fort Walton. I mean, obviously that's Alabama. If you look at Fort Walton, I mean, obviously that's Alabama. If you look at the map of the United States. And I'm sure Alabama probably resents Florida. Well, why'd they give it up? Why'd they give it up? I don't know. I don't know the history behind it. But I really, I sit at that meeting still and I think, you know, I just gave up all my coastal land to try to keep the peace. Whose fault was that? Whose fault was that? That was mine. Trying to avoid confrontation. Trying to just keep, avoid any trouble at all. Avoid any trouble at all. That's what this, you know, it's a program of honesty. Um... The only consistent source of help for matters that are beyond our control is a power greater than ourselves. and that's where we decide to turn uh, when we take step three. You know, alcoholism really, um, it, it brought me to my knees. It truly brought me to my knees. I mean I was just I, I felt like I had just hit a brick a brick wall. and um, what I know today with my children particularly is and I do it. I do, and when I pray in the morning, I just simply turn my children into the hands of a loving and compassionate God. And my only prayer for my kids is that they will come to know and love God. That is the only prayer that I pray for my kids, that they will come to know and to love God. That's it. Um, I also ask God for direction of my own thoughts, words, and, and actions. But what I have found is important for me in taking step three is through really through the example of other people's lives, creating for myself an attitude of serenity, an attitude of serenity. And I'll talk about that more when I talk about step 11. But for me, it's very important that I am in a very calm and quiet place when I take step three, when I do step three. Um, You know, there are days when I just simply say to God, give me the gas, just give me the gas to get me where you want me to go today. And that's, you know, I can keep it pretty simple. I can keep it pretty simple. I have no idea what God's plans are for me today. But if I ask for God's direction in my thoughts, actions, my thoughts, actions, and words, and if I ask for the gas to get there, I have to believe that that will happen. I have to believe that will happen. Um, Claire said that I was teaching, and I and I teach and I love it. But I teach juniors in high school, but the end of last year, because I happen to be the Person that determines who teaches what in our department. Um, it was clear to me that the two people who were teaching our seniors, they were very, very young, very, very young. They were like 23, and they're teaching 18 year old kids this, um, you know, philosophical theology. And they're, they're, you know, as I said to one of them, he, he's engaged. I said, you haven't even really had a real fight yet with your girlfriend. I mean, not to offend anybody, but, you know, their life is this big, and and I'm old. So it became clear to me that I was going to have to teach Takeover Seniors, uh-huh. and that I would have to reteach these kids that I had as juniors, which is not real. It was real. I knew it was going to be difficult. And to tell you the truth, it's been difficult. They just know me too well. I mean, when they're juniors, I'm like, we can learn it now, or we can learn it at a quarter or three, and then they all shut up. But now I say to the seniors, we can learn it now, and they're like, you're not going to stay after school. I mean, <laughs> they know I'm just full hot air. So it's been a little, little difficult. And um, and I've been doing an awful lot of praying and questioning if I should still be teaching. And two weeks ago, um, not two weeks ago, actually it was not this week, but the last week I had to take 59 of them on a four-day retreat. Yeah, with me. This old convent over, actually it was where the Rain Man was filmed in Kentucky. And, um, oh, God, you know, I said, God, really, if you want me to keep teaching, I will do it. But these kids are killing me. I mean, they're just too familiar with me, you know. They, I mean, when a kid starts calling you "calf," you say, "Hey, look, you know, there's a line. There's a line." You know. Anyway, so I'm praying. I'm saying, just let me know, God. If you want me to stay in here, give me the gas to do it. If you want me out, then maybe this is the year that's going to send me into another place. I got a letter from a kid who, who was a graduate while I was on that retreat, and he said, "Dear Miss Heegan," and I'm not saying this, and I know I believe, I hope that you know this, but he just said, "Dear Miss Heegan." You can't imagine, as a teacher, how good you made me feel, because I wasn't an athlete, I wasn't an academic, and yet you always made me feel like I was worthwhile, that I was of value. And for that, I am so very grateful, because it has meant a lot to me over the years. Well, after I read it, I thought, you know, maybe I'm not the greatest disciplinarian. I mean, that is my Achilles heel, because I just think they're so funny. Um, It's hard to discipline them when you're you're laughing at them, because they are so funny. Um, but I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. I mean, maybe this is the answer to my prayer. And if God wants me there, well, then just one day at a time, this is where I'll stay. But but really, for me, it's that willingness. It's making the decision to, to turn, turn it over to God and let God sort it out. So my sponsor always says, let God sort it out. And that letter that I got, I thought, you know, that's God's way of sorting this out. So I guess this is where I'll stay until I get another, you know, until I get another clue from God that maybe I'm supposed to be somewhere else. No matter what happens in our lives, we can trust that we will be guided and cared for. We are no longer in charge. Whew! Thank God. We are no longer in charge. My son, Michael, he was accepted into this program uh, a month before his 18th birthday. It's a ranch. It's out in the state of Washington, and it's all men. And all the men that are there are in AA or NA. And you got you to, you just have to, it's a working ranch. But in order to stay, you have to be going to meetings and you have to be sober and or clean. So this guy um, <clears throat> took my son in before his 18th birthday to call the courts and ask them if, because Michael is under house arrest, um, they, called, um, they called the courts at Cincinnati, Hamilton County Juvenile, and said, can we take this kid? Um... And would you, would you sign him over to our care? And the court said, you can take him tomorrow. And, um, and so they did. So all my children came back to Cincinnati, and we put this kid on a plane, and he went out to Seattle, Washington, to this ranch where he worked with horses, trained horses. And uh, he called me after uh, oh, he'd been there for a while, and he said he'd made a decision to join the Army. Um, which I guess is all right. But I was not, of course, very happy with it. I don't know why. I mean, I don't mean know if anybody that's in the military. My husband was in the military. He's in the Marines. But I don't know. I like my kids to go on to school. I like them to finish their college education because they get this wonderful uh, veteran scholarship through my husband. And um, I don't know, the Army. I hate all that shaven head, you know, make your bed till it. I hate all that discipline. <laughs> <laughs> oh now that I think about it, I guess that's what it is. I also don't like discipline very much, but at any rate. So, um, but I said, Mike, you know, if that's what you think is a good idea, honey, you know, if that's what you think is a good idea, you know, go for it. And I'm saying all these things that I really want to say. The Army? Are you crazy? The Army? I mean, it's battalions full of felons. Don't join the Army. But I don't say that. I say, whatever you want, you know, and I hang up the phone, and I call my brother, who's a retired colonel, and I say to him, how far is it from Cincinnati to Leavenworth? Martha? I'm already making plans, you know. <laughs> is the military population separate from the um, from the non-military population? Do, will I get it? I mean, I've already got him, of course, arrested by the Army in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, this, is how I, this is how I think. But you know what? Let me tell you this. My son went into the Army last summer, and he called me in August. He went in last June. In August, he called me, and it's when I was actually on vacation, so I wasn't home. But on my answering machine, he had left a message that he had been down in, um, he was in, uh, oh my gosh, now where is that place in Oklahoma? You know, the big army went, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And it was a Sunday morning, and, um, or no, it wasn't a Sunday morning, it must have been night, but it, 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 a dinner meal, but he was eating in the mess hall, and a young kid across from him started to choke. And Michael got up, and did the Heimlich maneuver on him and popped the thing, I think it was meat, out of his throat and saved the kid's life. And, and the Army, because of it, they allowed him 30 minutes of free phone time. <laughs> I was like, what? And then later they did, they gave him a medal. But you know, when I heard that, I thought to myself, all my whining about the Army. And you know what? Maybe God's plan was for some other mother's son that my son would be in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, one August evening, in order to save her son's life. What do I know about the plan of God? I don't know anything. And then, out of this battalion or whatever it was, battalion or four platoons of 250 men, Michael was the top graduate. He got the Honor Graduate Award. Now, what do I know? I don't know anything. That's what I love about Step 3. Things like that that happen in my life that remind me that really it is in God's hands. It's in God's hands, no matter what. That I have to allow God to bring order from chaos. That I have to allow God to bring hope from despair. And that I have to allow God to bring healing from great, great hurt. Um, step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. Uh, it says in our literature that the key to step four is that it be taken fearlessly free from judgment. By looking at and accepting ourselves as we truly are, we can make decisions about who we choose to be. Um <clears throat> You know, I think that that step four is really about that courage to change that we talk about. To really be willing, for me it was at any rate, to really be willing to make this program about me. It took a certain amount of courage that was given to me by other people to change, to take a look at those, at those four Ms. I have a friend that lives over in Kentucky right on the river, and two years ago that river came up, the Ohio River came up, And she, I mean, it was, she didn't abandon her house. There's a picture of her in the front of the Cincinnati Inquirer sitting on her front porch, just looking at that river, which is level with her front porch. And I called her because I knew it had filled up her entire basement. I called her and I said, Judy, let me come on over and help you clean it. And she said, you don't want to come. I mean, you don't want to come. She said, you have no idea what it looks like after a river has filled your basement. She said, it's a mess. She said, right now, all I'm doing is taking inventory, trying to decide what has been damaged and what hasn't. You know, when she said that, I thought, "Oh, isn't that just like alcoholism, like this raging river that's out of control. And when you finally get in the program and it's subsided a little bit, then it's time to take an inventory. And it's not about good or it's not about bad. It's just about trying to see what's been damaged and what's still intact. And that's how I did the fourth step. I looked at what had been damaged and what was still intact, and when I looked at it that way, I could be far more honest and fearless about doing it. You know, it was honest and it was searching, and it was fearless because I didn't attach to it any kind of moral judgment. It was just about the damage the river had done. You know, what's still working, what really, what really needs, you know, what do I really need God to remove here? Um, because that really, for me, is what, what, what had occurred. The defects in my life had just become obstacles, obstacles to the grace of God. They were getting in my way of the grace of God. I was putting them up, was putting them up. And a lot for me had to do with ego and pride, which constantly, you know, they just work as my enemy. Even today, when I'm doing that daily inventory, that on pride of mine, daggone it, it gets me in trouble. All I can do is ask God to remove it and ask for some humility, which truly and honestly has been granted to me in certain times when it's been necessary. If we are not ready to use the step fearlessly, we may still be confused about the purpose of taking inventory and probably have unfinished business with the previous three steps. You know, the whole idea of step four being about my recovery was so, so important. The belief that it was a family disease. I may have mentioned this last night. You know, my my mother was raised by a very mean Irish drinker. And I have said to her before, Mom, do you think your father was a drunk? Oh, no. He was just, I mean, an alcoholic. she go, oh, no. He was just a mean Irish drunk. Oh, we didn't have enough money for him to have been an alcoholic. <laughs> okay, Mom, whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a family thing that continues on. And I see it in my own children, like this one little Ellen who went to an Al-Anon meeting, and the first one she went to, I was there. And when when she started to talk, she said I'm trying not to cry. That's the first thing she said, I'm trying not to cry. And I could see as her the tears just ran down her face. I could see that years and years of grief and sadness and confusion over this disease were being you know, were being let loose. And after the meeting all these young women came up to her and surrounded her and it was a wonderful thing on one hand. On the other hand, it really hit me one more time how profoundly and deeply this disease hits families. Hits families. Um, you know, this whole idea, um, you know, of, of freedom from fear that a fourth step allows me. When I'm honest with myself, the freedom from fear that, that it puts in my life. I don't encourage anybody, you know, to, I mean, I've, personally, when I sponsor women, I don't like to say, well, you know, wait a couple of years. What I do encourage them to do, though, is to use that, that book, Path Through, Pathways to Recovery, which which starts with the steps, and after, chat, you know, step one, step two, step three, there are a series of questions they answer. I encourage them to do that, to read those first three steps carefully, to answer those questions, to share those um, with me or with somebody before they begin that fourth step, just to get them ready for it. But I don't know about you, but I, I certainly didn't want to hold on to that stuff any longer because of the freedom that it allows me when I finally let go of it. And could honestly say, here's what it looks like after a, after the raging river. This is what it's you know this is what it looks like. Um, step four. Uh, step four can create fantastic opportunities to move our lives in a more positive direction until we know exactly where we are. We cannot know where we're headed. That really makes sense to me. Having a vision of the kind of woman that I believe God calls me to be is critical. It's critical. I sponsor a woman who is divorced and has a very troubling relationship with her ex-husband. And sometimes she calls and she'll say, I don't know what it is. I always say to myself, no matter what he says, I'm not going to let it set me off. No matter what he says, I'm not going to let it set me off. And then she said, I get on the phone with him and he says something. And she said, I'm off and running. I said to her, Mary, take some time to think about what kind of ex-wife you want to be. I mean, have a vision of her. And then, once you've got that, then act like her. And that seems to work for Mary. She spends time thinking about what kind of ex-wife she wants to be, and now she tries to act like that, like that woman. I think that's a really important part of the fourth step for me. You know, Lisa Ann, with her ex-boyfriend, the same thing. She was going to meet him, to just to iron, you know, tie up loose ends. Before she left, I said, Lisa Ann, tell me exactly how you want how you want to act in this evening, no matter what goes on. She said, well, I don't want to raise my voice. I don't want to blah, 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 blah. I want to end it kindly, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, then, do it. Act like her. Act like that ex-girlfriend you want to be. She called me the next day. She said it went better than I thought. She said, no matter what he did, I just remembered how it was that I wanted to be. I kept that vision in my mind, and I acted like her. And it's, I don't know, it just seems to work. I do it myself as a mother and as a teacher. I hold on to the kind of vision of the, of the mother that I want to be, the teacher I want to be, of the friend I want to be. And I really base that vision on the men and women that I go to meetings with and who are an important part of my recovery. I think about them and how I want to act, and when I have that vision down, uh, and it really has become a lot clearer to me as a result of doing a fourth step, then I then I have a better shot at it. Okay, um, what we were going to do now is, we uh, haven't done this, this first four briefly, it um, should really now be about 10 o'clock, oh, it almost is. Well, anyway, so what we're going to do right now is, um, this is an idea, and you'll have to figure this out, and I'm sure you'll do it. You'll do a good job. Um, when I was first asked to do a workshop, just a workshop, I was like, "What? A workshop? All I do is tell this little story. I want to do workshops." And I must have been whining about it when I was in Iowa. And this woman, Carol, in Iowa, said she was a delegate, and she said, "Oh, do do the bag." And I said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "Just fill up a bag with different items, and then um, break the, the the men and women into like groups of ten to 12 and have them just pass this bag around and they all pull out an item and um, then they just discuss what that item means to them how it symbolizes some piece of their recovery so I thought well that sounds kind of fun so my friends and I in Cincinnati we sat at this pizza parlor one night making up stuff to put in a bag we were hysterical we were hysterical so uh, I said to uh, Claire well maybe you know to break it up because I sure don't want to talk all day long um, maybe we could break it up and do the bags <laughs> I don't know what Claire put in her bags But what we're going to ask you to do is And Claire, do you want, I don't know if you want to take a Well, I'll tell you what Break yourselves up Of course I will say to you what I always say to high school students Now sit with somebody new And then when people say that to me I think, I don't want to sit with somebody new I don't want to make any new friends I can't take care of the friends I got already Why well, don't want to make new friends So do whatever you want to do I'd encourage you to sit with somebody new But I know you'll sit with whoever you want to So why do I even say it but this is what I think is important, is because, just so you can hear each other, if you can somehow break yourselves up into groups of maybe 10 to 12, and Claire will give you a bag, and then just go around, and everybody pulls something out of the bag, and for about 30 minutes, you and your small groups to just share what you ever you pulled out has to do with your recovery. And then we'll do that till about 11 o'clock. And if you need to go to the bathroom in between there or anything or grab a drink, do that. Does that sound, are you clear on that? I have no idea where the bags are. Where's Claire? Oh, okay, she's got the bags back there. So if you want to send a representative from your group, whatever. Okay. Great, that's great, that's great. Well, uh, I'm going to start with uh, step five then, and um, I'm going to try to go five through eight, and then at 12 we'll break for lunch for an hour, so that'll be great. Um, <clears throat> step five, we fear that our wrongs are worse than anyone else's and that we would be humiliated if we ever admitted them. If we can summon the courage to challenge these fears, we take a huge step toward personal freedom. Um <clears throat> I know that when I did step five, and when I have done, um, I've done several step fives, and um, most all of them have been done. Well, actually, with my with my own with my own sponsor, and you know, Patty will say to me oftentimes, and still says to me when I when I call her, she has this wonderful phrase. She'll say, "Lay that at the feet of alcoholism." Lay that at the feet of alcoholism, mm-hmm. and what it does for me is it allows me to see that a lot of the actions, a lot of the behavior that I exhibit really is a direct result of my being so deeply affected by alcoholism and it's not that it put it takes me off the hook but it certainly allows me to see in the context of this disease it makes a little more sense about my um, about my behavior lay that at the feet of alcoholism um, not so long ago a um, woman said to me, um, a woman that I sponsor, she'd been working on her fourth step and we were ready to do a fifth step. And she really was dragging her feet and dragging her feet. And she finally said to me, I know it seems like I'm dragging my feet, but she said, I'm so afraid that when you hear my fourth step, you won't like me anymore. Now, when whenever anybody says that to me, and I've heard a number of fourth steps over the years, when it's a woman and I only sponsor women, but I always know it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring up things that are so painful for women. Which generally is abortion, which generally is affairs, uh, sometimes abandoning children. You know, it's whenever a woman is really, really sensitive about taking a step and will say something to me like, "You won't like me anymore." I know it's going to be we're going to hit one or all of those things. And I suppose for me, over the years, that I have really grown as a as a sponsor. I have grown (laughs) this. Hugely compassionate love for women and what this disease uh, does, does to us, what it does to us. I've never heard, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have never heard a shocking, uh, really a shocking fifth step because uh, it's, the, it's such a pattern, the things that we do. One time I was listening to somebody's fifth step and she said she had been married. She was on at this time her sixth marriage. And she said, I know you must think that's horrible. And I said, are you kidding? You've been married six times? You're the bravest woman I know. <laughs> Will you be my sponsor? I mean, six times you go back into the ring? Woo! what courage. What hope. <clears throat> but I... <clears throat> lay that at the feet of alcoholism. I just know this about fearing my wrongs. When I'm at a meeting of, alco- of, of, uh, of Al-Anon, <clears throat> you know what connects us, I believe? It's not so much our strengths that connect us, but what really I make my connection with other women at the meetings, and the men too, certainly, it's through our brokenness. It's through our brokenness that I relate to another woman Um, in our failings. That's where I connect as another human being, with that woman that went down the same road I went in her desperate attempt to try to fix a situation that was beyond our our human powers. It's where we connect, I think, in our humanity. It's through our weaknesses, um, and in and in our brokenness, and I've often said, I believe that it's through our brokenness that God that God gets through. It's that break in my soul where God was able to reach His hand in, and really healing began. That's where healing began for me, at any rate. Um, <clears throat> I need to, when I'm in the step five, to watch out. I always have to watch out for my ego because it's my ego that separates me from other people. And I think that anything that is divisive is not good. Anything that separates us as human beings is not good because uh, and it's not healthy for me. That's what alcoholism did. It it isolated me. That's what recovery does for me. It brings me back into a spirit of community um, with my fellow being and a community of compassion. Um, These seniors that I have to teach um, actually I had to teach a few classes of them back in the early nineties although uh, it was just a few classes of them and I had to go and view Schindler's List when that came out because we were going to take the whole school to see it. And I remember because I teach when I teach this unit on suffering, I do a unit on the Holocaust, and that actually is what we're in the middle of right now. Um, <clears throat> but I was sitting at this theater in Cincinnati um, watching the Schindler's List to make sure, you know, I had to view it before we t- brought the junior and senior classes to watch, you know, to see it because it was it had at R rating. And when I finished watching it, uh, as I got up to leave, there were three women behind me, and one of them said to the other, Who could do that? Who could do that to another human being? And I wanted to turn to her and say, You could. I could. I mean, we could. (laughs) That's who could. We could. Because I know when I am fearful enough and in enough desperation, I know what I am capable of doing. When I did my fifth step, when I have heard other fifth, other people's fifth step, I know what you know. I know the side of us that can come alive out of great fear, out of great anger, and out of great resentment. And I think that is an important piece for me to learn to embrace that side of me which is dark, which is dark, um, <clears throat> because that's the truth. That's you know that's the truth of who I am, and that is the exact nature of my wrong. That is the exact nature of my wrong, um, <clears throat> and I know that there are parts of me that are not healthy. I know, I know that they are there, and with great fear, I know what I can do. We try to identify the exact nature of our wrongs, the motives or patterns behind them, behind these shortcomings, be, ah, behind these shortcomings, recognizing that many of our past errors were merely symptoms of an underlying problem or a weakness of character. I don't like to blame anything on my parents. I had great, great parents. My mother's still alive. She's great. I adored my father. All six of my brothers and sisters and I, we I mean, everything that he did was a funny thing. He was just wonderful. I grew up with a father that no matter what I did, he would say, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. You know, if I went to a party, did you go to a party? Was it fun? Who was there? Would they say, oh, that's great. Good for you. I mean, that was my whole life with my dad. He was just such a huge supporter and advocate for me. but I also grew up Irish, and that brings with it certain a certain way of thinking. My uh, f- a friend of mine went over to Ireland and came back with this quote from Yeats, which I have framed in my kitchen, and it says, "Being Irish, he had an abiding sense of tragedy, which was momentarily interrupted by which was interrupted temporarily by moments of joy." And, you know, I thought to myself, isn't, I mean, truly, there's this tragic thing that I grew up with. I don't know what it is. It's just this, you know, this sense of tragedy about a lot of things. Um, My mother, when I was taking her out to Seattle to visit Michael at the horse thing, when I went to pick her up at the airport, now she's 83 and she's. Strong as an ox and in good health, and she's the one that believes that everything can be cured by cracking a kid in the head. I mean, whenever my kids were in trouble, she'd say, oh, just crack him in the head. Like, that would take care of it. But when I went to pick her up, she said to me, um, I hope, well, we were going to the airport, and I have got her and got all of her stuff in the car, and we were driving away. She looked back at her house, and she said, gee, I hope it doesn't burn down while we're gone. <laughs> I said, what? She said, I hope my house doesn't burn down when we're gone. I mean, that's the kind of thinking. I think that it's an Irish Catholic thing. <laughs> There's always expecting this huge tragedy. My father used to say that. He used to say, our people are a tragic people. and I, uh, Also, they're kind of funny people, too. But, you know, it's that idea of, um, uh, of always, you know, expecting the worst. And I know that's a piece of me that I have to guard. But this fifth step when it's taken I believe in in the proper spirit it allows me and this again is in our literature it allows me to look at the past without staring at it and that has been an important piece of my program to look at the past without staring at it um once when um this past summer we had this huge reunion my on my mother's side of the family and my mother's parents came over uh, from Ireland when they were in their, uh, I guess they were in their early 20s. And one of my first cousins, who's from New York, she did this huge family tree, which dates back to the 1700s. And what was very interesting about that family tree that she had uh, on the whole, it took up a whole wall of the back of the parish uh, house, there was not one divorce in that whole family tree. Not one. Not one. And my brother, who was acting as MC, noted that. And he said, you know what that tells me? It tells me that either our family has been incredibly lucky or we have a tremendous capacity for suffering. (laughs) And really, I mean, this tremendous capacity for suffering. I may have said that last night if you heard it because I often say it. I mean, truly, I always believed that, um, you know, I mean, I was taught that suffering is good and silent sufferings the best. I mean, that's the best. Anybody can suffer but to suffer silently, that's the best. That's the golden ring. And so to take care of myself and to unburden and to admit my wrongs and to try to get at the exact nature, to lay things at the foot of alcoholism, that's a new way of thinking for me. That's a new way of thinking for me. Um, We also acknowledge our talents, our strengths, our positive actions and attributes. Our character assets can form the basis of a life centered around self-love and self-caring if we recognize and admit their importance. I don't know about you, but I am the hardest on myself. I am always the hardest on myself. I am my worst critic. I can be unrelenting. I mean, I can get off the phone with another woman and say, you know... You're doing the best you can, you are right where you belong, you know, you're just where God wants you today, and then it's like, what am I saying? (laughs) Why do I say these things to other people, but how often do I say these things to myself, that I'm right where I'm supposed to be today? My sponsor has always said to me, you are enough for today. You are enough for today. I have to remind myself of that, because I can really be a bully to myself to myself and I believe you know that sponsorship and being sponsored really has a lot to do with being a cheerleader encouraging you know giving great hope to another human being sharing how I work these steps my sponsor is not a bully and sometimes when I'm at meetings and I hear people it sounds to me with great pride describing tactics of their sponsor I think that's what we're trying to get away from. You know, I, I don't know, but for me, you know I have, I have received tremendous comfort and encouragement from a sponsor who loves me unconditionally. I do not have a bully as a sponsor. And if I, I don't know how long I would have lasted. I go up to Cape Cod in the summers. My, my f- father used to take us up there since we were little kids, and there's nothing that brings me greater peace is to sit along the Atlantic Ocean, no matter what the temperature or the weather is like. I could sit on that Atlantic Ocean and never move. So I went up there, and um, I went to this one, you know, Al-Anon meeting up there. It was very clear to me when I, as soon as I entered the room, that there was a queen in that meeting. I mean, she was the queen. She was the queen of Al-Anon. And uh, I sat down, and I was sharing with her, or with the group, really, that uh, one of my kids who was up there with me that year, I mean, that was when, you know, last year I went alone. It was the first time in my life I ever went on a vacation alone. It was wonderful. But usually I've got anywhere between, I don't think L7 have ever gone, but at least six. I mean, I've, it varies in numbers depending on what they're doing in the summer. And this one kid uh, who had been in AA was with me, and, um, you know, he wasn't really keen on going to an AA meeting on Cape Cod, and I had to let go of that. I went to the meeting and I was sharing that you know it was really important for me to let go and I was struggling with letting go because I wanted him to call the AA number on the Cape and go to a meeting, but I know I can you know it's not a good policy it's against the principles blah 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 so I shared it. We we're going around the room and then there was a woman who it's her very first meeting. She was her very first meeting. She had just gotten away from an abusive husband. She was at their home on the Cape. It was her very first meeting. And when it got around to the Queen, the Queen reached across the table with her finger and said to me you need to let go of your son. And then she said to the new woman, and you need to see me at the end of the meeting. Now, that's not my home group. I've never been back to that meeting. But you know what I thought? If I had been a newcomer, that's the, that's the thing that got me where I was, that, you know, being pushed, or, you know, or feeling like I was being pushed around, blah, blah, blah. If I had gone to an Al-Anon meeting and that had been my first meeting, I never, ever would have come back. I never would have come back. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, I know that that's, that's why I say, I always say, there's nothing sicker than a sick Al-Anon meeting. But, see, I don't think that's what we're about here. I don't think that's what step five is. I think step five is just simply, you know, that, that we share with another human being and with our God and to ourselves the exact nature of our wrongs. And my experience with being a sponsor and being sponsored has always been one of love and compassion and great mercy and great mercy. Step six, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We are powerless to remove our defects of character by ourselves. Instead, we are reminded that we are in a partnership with a power greater than ourselves. Um, it didn't strike me until just a little while ago that some of you, um, if you were not here last night, um, what you need to know is that when I was about, um, I got into al on in April, April 5th of 1982, and um, on May 25th of 1985, my husband left to fly a a gyrocopter. It's a homemade helicopter, which he loved, and he never came back from that uh, May 25th excursion because his gyrocopter crashed and he was killed. And a month before he died, a month before he died, I knew, because of you, that really I had to allow God to do what I simply could not do, that I really, really had to let go of my husband because... He was so miserable. He had been in AA for a little bit and he just had a difficult time with Alcoholics Anonymous because he was raised in a faith, his interpretation of a faith that told him that life is supposed to be difficult and hard and you get your reward in another world. And he would go to AA and he was surrounded by men and women who were happy, who had lives of joy and it was difficult for him. Uh, it was difficult for him to reckon that with what he thought he had heard growing up as a kid. So he was no longer going to AA. His mother had cut him off from lending him money. Uh, He was alienated from his family. I was really trying to let go and not engage in any kind of, you know, I was learning to say, and had been learning to say, you know, you could be right. And people were saying to me, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? He's not able to, you know, he had a huge fight at work. It was just, it was an awful time for him. And I could see that he was in a tremendous amount of emotional pain. I could see that. And yet I knew that I was powerless over that, that that was his journey. And that sometimes we need to sit there for a while until we are motivated to make changes in our lives. But it's hard to watch somebody in that kind of pain. It's hard to sit by and to not try to, you know, try to make the rough road smooth for them. My oldest son, after Rick died, my oldest son was 14 at the time, and he, because of drugs and alcohol, got thrown into a detention center. The old one, not the modern one. He was in the old one. And he was there for uh, three months. They let him cool his heels. Because every time they'd send somebody in there, like a social worker, um, to interview him, he would come back with some smart aleck. You know, they'd say, do you have any allergies? And he'd say, yeah, I'm allergic to social workers. And they were like, you know, we need this kid, like we need a boil on our head. So they would leave. But while he was in there, um, a kid in the cell next to him hung himself. And my son was the first one, of course, you know, to, to see it. And that's not anything I'd want for my my oldest child. They have to go through that. And yet, that is what eventually got him ready to say, 16 years old, he turned 16 in jail. I'm 16 years old. All my friends have driver's license and they're going to the prom and I'm sitting here with kids who are taking their lives. I want to do something differently. But it's hard to watch people I love learn harsh lessons. But that's when I have to become entirely ready to have God remove that those things in me that want to get in there and change it and fix it and make it easier, really, for me. It makes it easier for me, if I'm honest about it. Um, One of the times when I was driving my son, Michael, to yet another place the court had ordered him into, and it was getting towards the end of his career as a drinker and a user, and... um, I'm driving him over to DUI school, and we were going along, you know, Martin Luther King Drive, which seems to lead to every rehab place uh, in Cincinnati. When it was opened, we're driving along one more time down Martin Luther King Drive, and I turned to him and I said, you know, Michael, I'm getting so tired of driving down this road. And he turned to me and he said, you know what, Mom? So am I. And I thought, that's probably the truth. That's probably the truth. He's just as tired of this as I am. But... What I have to learn is, is that, you know, I'm powerless. I am powerless to remove those defects of character in me and in him. The best I can do is to make myself entirely ready to have God step in. And that's what I'm finding with these seniors. I'm powerless over their behavior and their familiarity with me and my, at times, tiredness of it. I have to allow God to step in for me and to remove whatever it is that's really, really wearing me down. By accepting our limitations, we can avail ourselves of unlimited possibilities. With God's help, we can overcome seemingly impossible obstacles. Seemingly impossible impossible obstacles. Um, And I think that's what I'm finding today in my own life, is that uh, I knew this was going to be a rough year for me, and yet, you know what? It's almost February, and one day at a time, It's really been okay. I mean, it's really been okay. I have learned a lot this year about me, about what I can do, about what I cannot do. I've had to look at a lot of my character defects in the face and recognize them for what they are. It's been a good lesson for me. I also have found um, over the years, when I was in college, I used to date the nicest guy. in the Oh, he was just the nicest guy, the kindest guy in the whole world. But who who was interested in living with him for the rest of his life?
1: (laughs) I mean, when Mr. Excitement was out there, you know, in those jets being insane, that's what I thought would be the adventure. Well, to make a really long story short, Mr. Kind Guy, I mean, he never, you know, whenever I would, people would say, hey, did you ever hear from, you know, so-and-so? I'd say, no, you know, no. And and people would always say, well, I think he's still, you know, he's really still, his heart's on his sleeve. He's still crazy about you. And I'd think... Why are they telling me this? I mean, you know, it's 20 years later. Who needs to hear this story? But by God, if Mr. Kindness doesn't continue to come in and out of my life, and today he's back into my life, he's just the kindest man in the world. And... Ten years of recovery. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. Who would have thought? Anyway, I didn't think there was such a thing as being a quiet alcoholic. I thought they were just like all wild and crazy and jumping off bridges and stuff like the ones I knew. But so here I am again in a position, in a situation, in a relationship where I am learning that a lot of what happened to me earlier on really has to do, I'm beginning to see my part. I'm beginning to see my part. I'm beginning to see this side of me that I didn't see when I was married to Rick Heakin because I was so concerned with his defects of character that I never took a look at mine. In a fourth step, they were uncovered. In a fifth step, they were shared. And in a sixth step, they're irritating me is what they're doing because I'm beginning to see that I really am going to have to ask God to remove. And a lot of what I'm asking to be removed is fear. A lot of what I'm asking to be removed is fear. Fear of that loss of my coastal lands. I mean, I really, truly am beginning to see that as a result of this relationship in my life. Our defects of character can be blessings in disguise because in order to be free of them, we must deepen our faith, and that spiritual depth will bless our lives. Now, I truly, with my whole heart and soul... You know, if I were going to cut anything out and and frame it, it might be that. Our defects of uh, character can be blessings in disguise because in order to be free of them, we must deepen our faith and, and that spiritual depth will bless our lives. There is something about children, I think, that really has taught me a lot of lessons about what God can do and what I can do. And uh, I have a father-in-law, and I don't know if I said this last night, my father-in-law is deceased now, but he used to raise quarter horses. And he used to say court that horses were the dumbest animals in the world. I mean, they were not smart animals. And that if it weren't for horse flies that continued to bite them, they'd never move. I mean, they'd starve to death because they, they would not have enough sense to move to new pasture, you know, to get new grass. They'd just stand around and keep trying to eat the mud but it's the horse flies that used to bite them that would make a move see I think of my kids as horse flies you know because it is really because of my kids continually bite, you know biting me that I have had to really come to my knees with a total sense of powerlessness and to know that that I really must become entirely ready to have God do for me what I cannot do for myself. I've had, as a result of these kids, a lot of experience with the law and with police. And there is nobody that is calmer than I don't think than I when a squad caller pulls up in front of my house, because I simply know that all I can do, and I don't say that in a disrespect for authority, but I just simply know that with that number of kids, given their intense personalities, that we're going to have visits, that we're going to have visits. Um, <clears throat> I was on the phone once with the, the, the boyfriend, and uh, and he tells the story all the time. We were talking and talking, and I said, There's a policeman at the door. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I just hung up and went to the door. And there was a policeman with my youngest son. He broke curfew. We have a curfew in the city of Cincinnati, which I I think, of course, is ridiculous. But, um, you know, I mean, the kids know about it, and they have to to follow it. So this cop had my kid. It was 10 after 10, and the curfew's at 10 o'clock. And he was returning him to me. Well, my son had a little friend who's from...